0: Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Sean McLaughlin, who is a producer and engineer who runs 37-foot productions out of Boston in the US. And in addition to running his studio, he is a professor in the music production and engineering major at Berkeley. Now, Sean, over the years, has worked with so many notable guys, such as Andy Johns, Jimbo Barton, Carmen Rizzo, and he's worked with artists like Rush, Elliott Smith, Marilyn Manson, and so many others. And in 2013, 2018, and 2019, Sean had the honor of being named the producer of the year by the New England Music Awards. And in 2019, Sean became the first to win the producer of the year for both the Boston Music Awards and the New England Music Awards in the same year. So Sean definitely knows his stuff. And in this interview, I just think we have an amazing conversation all about communicating with artists and making sure that you're helping artists have their vision come to life and how Just by having certain conversations early on, you can really get a lot of clarity in terms of the decisions that you need to make in either the recording, editing, or mixing stages. And Sean just shares a lot of great examples of ways that we can communicate better with our artists in order to ultimately make the final product sound incredible. So I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Let's not waste any time. Let's just jump right into this interview. This is Sean McLaughlin on the Master Mix podcast. Sean McLaughlin, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. For people who might not know you or your background, can you give us that story of how you got into music and ultimately to where you are today?
1: Oh, sure. Um, so I'm old. So I started <laughs> working in the industry in like the mid 90s and was working at a studio just south of Boston uh, that, you know, we had, you know, local celebrities, I guess you'd say, like Ben Orr from The Cars. I got to work on some stuff with him and some stuff with Peter Wolf. And Um, you know, any kind of local thing as, as, as you know, when you get started in the industry, you kind of take whatever jobs come your way. So I ended up recording. Yeah, exactly. So I ended up doing a lot of like midnight sessions with Cape Verdean artists, uh, and, and just learning how to engineer and cut my teeth doing that. And that was on tape. I don't know for everyone out there. Tape is like pro tools that works on a separate machine with two reels, you've probably seen a plugin that looks just like it.
0: Exactly. (laughs) uh,
1: And, uh, it was, you only, you were limited to 24 tracks or 48 tracks. If you sync if you had a sync machine. So, um, I had my plan to move to LA, got cancer at 25. Oh man. Uh, and did not have health insurance. So it took some time to pay off my, my bills for that. Moved to LA in 2001. Um, worked with a lot of great producers, artists, and a lot of great studios. Uh, The probably the biggest, uh, or I should say the most influential person I worked with on me, was Jimbo Barton who had done a lot of like rush Queensryche, Enya Ozzy Osbourne, you know, had done a lot of amazing projects and I've basically just hovered around him for as long as I could. So I could learn as much as possible. And we did uh, some stuff with, Buck Cherry, uh, Rush, uh, Stone Sour, you know a, bu- a bunch of gr- Metallica. Metallica's MTV icon did the audio for that, and and Jimbo and I, over the years, have still worked together. You know, working on some Matchbox Twenty stuff and the last Queensrÿch record that came out about five years ago, and um, so was there from 01 to '04. Moved back to Boston in '04, uh, started teaching at uh, local school here and just getting my my teaching chops going and opened a studio in 26 that I'm that I'm currently in and started teaching at Berkeley in
0: 2014. Wow. So it's uh it's been a long road. That's how it is in this industry though, right? It's like especially, you know, going from that that starting point of you just take on everything you can. I think it just kind of warms you up for the path that everyone goes on later on, right? It's like you get experience doing a lot of different things and then throughout your life you're going to just gradually go from one thing to another, maybe. And, and just who knows where where your career can go from there. Right.
1: Exactly. Well, I
0: think art in
1: general is like this. You've got to learn to be diverse. You've got to learn to pivot. You've got to learn to, um, take each experience as its own learning experience. I think there, there's a big thing to the idea of what your goals and objectives are when you're doing things. And like, I knew when I moved to Los Angeles, I wasn't going to live there because I didn't like Los Angeles. So I wanted to go in and get as much knowledge as I could and work with as many great people as I could and really like see how the big boys did it. You know, at the, at the time there was no, there were no podcasts like this. There was no mix with the masters. There was no pure mix. So there, there were no, you know, I'll say, I'll say it because they're both good and bad YouTube tutorials for things like this. Uh, so there was no way for anyone to learn this other than to be in a studio. Mm-hmm. We weren't able to make music on laptops. There, people barely had laptops. So, I I decided I needed to go where the action was.
0: Yeah, well, that's not a bad idea though, right? Like you have to sometimes just being in the uh, in the lion's den kind of forces you to just learn quickly, right? Absolutely. And I
1: think you know, in in America, we have three cities, well, four cities, I would say. We've got New York, L.A., Atlanta, and Nashville, where like music is kind of a central hub. And in places like Nashville, it's a little more diverse than just country, but it's pretty, it's pretty focused in Atlanta. It's pretty focused in kind of R and B hip hop world. And, and then there are smaller pockets around, you know, like Minneapolis has a scene, Virginia beach has a scene, Seattle has a scene, San Francisco, you know, Austin, Texas, there, there are all these little pockets around where they you know, the industry isn't focused there and you know the machinery doesn't work the same way it's much more of an independent and in some cases diy methodology that people use but now i think there's so much more versatility in where you can be to learn this stuff and to and to really kind of build your chops on it
0: yeah so do you think that it you know you don't, in in today's environment of having all of this stuff online like do you think that people should still try to go to those major hubs I think it depends on what their goals are. I, th- I think some people,
1: if your goal is to, well, first off, if your goal is to become pa- famous, get a better goal.
0: Because if your goal <laughs> is to
1: rely on other people to like you and to satisfy you, then you've got to find that within. Uh, but that's, that's a great point. That's, yeah. I mean, that's my that's my general philosophy on that type of thing. But if your goal is to work on records that have a major and potentially worldwide impact, you need to be in a bigger place. If your goal is to build your own, I hate to say brand, but to build your own, um, ecosystem and to build your own kind of subculture and to work within a subculture, you can really live anywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah, my, my former partner who used to be here is now in Portland, Oregon, and he's already kind of found his subculture of people like indie rock bands that he gets to work with and studios that he's working out of. And he's found that just like everywhere. People who work in this industry are generally really friendly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like the community, people want to help the community. I think, especially in the smaller places where if the industry isn't there, that's all we really have is, is each other. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think those places are really helpful. Boston included.
0: It can definitely go both ways. Right. Cause, cause to your mm-hmm. point of like, if your goal is that you want to become famous, then you know, it. A lot of times requires other people to help you get there and so and so sometimes you have to take that view and be like Okay, well, I have to do this for myself. I have to be the one that's gonna find my own path I'm gonna do the the things that get me there on my own, right? So sometimes there's that kind of like isolated feeling and then other times It's like you do have to still network you have to you always have to be on top of your game 100% I I think it works both ways And and I think that like um for a lot of musicians, I, at least I'm speaking from my own experience here, it's like for me, like I, I did have that idea of like I want to be a big musician, right? And like I play in my band and like work my ass off with my band and, and we we did have some success to some degree, but at some point, it's like I'm in a band with like four other guys where it's like a marriage of four other people and, you know, inevitably like somebody wants to like have kids or get married or move away and blah, blah, blah. And then like my world crashed. So for me, I was like, okay, I got to take things on, on my own and that, and that's ultimately why I think I became an engineer because I just, I was fascinated with the tools. And, you know, I realized, okay, I I have, I've control of my own destiny here when I'm working on my own, but you know, there's, you still have to network too, right? Like there's, yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong. Like if you want to be successful and, and have your music reach as many people as possible, I think that's great. But I think the focus should be on what you're working on, on your art, on your creativity. Like you need to make yourself happy first before you can make other people happy. That's, but, that's,
0: that's the big point right there. I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So like, I think Mike and I, I, I think you and I kind of come from a similar place with this, yeah. where like I was in bands when I was younger and I always noticed that you're right. The marriage is there and there's always something that happens with bands, you know, because no band is, I mean, other than you two, I don't know of any band that's made it through with all their members for 40 years. It's pretty rare. (laughs) Yeah. It's it just doesn't really happen. So I think, I think for me, I found like every time I was in a band, I wanted to like be working on other types of music as well. So I ended up joining multiple bands and I was like, now I'm just tired. I can't really do anything. So it's one of the things that I love about being able to produce an engineer is I get to work on, you know, a great like roots rock record today. And then tomorrow I might get to work on this ambient instrumental thing. And then the next day I get to work on this dream pop thing. And then I get to work on this pop country thing. So, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I never get bored of it.
0: Yeah. I agree. It's It's like being a member of a band for a week and you just get to have like all this fun, creative time in the studio and then the band leaves and you go on to the next one. And it's a new, new way of being creative.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and mixing is even more so because like, you can work on a different song from a different genre daily for weeks at a time. (laughs) True. If you know, and, and that's kind of like, that was one of the great benefits of COVID for me, like is a bunch of people reaching out going, Hey, do you have like, do you have like Thursday open in two weeks? Because I'd love to do a mix and just like audio movers it and, you know, kind of be a part and react in time, which is not my, it's not my favorite way to work because I don't like having people, listening while I'm listening when I mix. Yeah. Because I feel like they're hearing my decisions as I make them as, but without
0: knowing what your decision really was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well also like their ears are getting used to all the things that I'm getting used to. So like their thought process ends up aligning with mine and I'd rather send it to, to someone whose thought process is completely different than that. That may shift my perspective on it and make me think, Oh, I never thought of approaching it that way. Maybe I can, you know, just pop that in and, you know, hybrid these things and and make something that's even better than what we have.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting point that you bring up there too, about the the idea of like having attended sessions or non-attended sessions and how that can change your creativity and and the whole process. Right. So, so it sounds like you generally prefer to have non-attended sessions in general or
1: for mixes for mixes. I prefer to either have non-attended or attended, but hang out in the lounge until I call you in to say like, Hey, how do you feel? Like, gotcha. you know, I'll, ca- I'll call someone in like halfway through and be like, what do you feel about the direction of this? And then you gotcha. know, I'll get a yes or no. But, but most of like, most of the stuff that I mixed that I haven't tracked is from people who don't live anywhere close. So, Fair. um, in the, in the summer of last year, I think it was the summer of last year, right in the height of COVID. I was, uh, mixing a record for a producer in Nashville with an artist in Montreal and musicians from everywhere in between. And (laughs) no one had ever played in the same room. And I'd finish a mix, you know, like, I don't want to say, you know, the mixes weren't challenging, but they weren't challenging to the point where I had to fix anything because everyone played their butts off on it. So, so I got to the point where it's like five o'clock or so. And I sent out an email going, Hey, here's, here's the link to the song. I use this app called file pass. That's really great. Yeah. File File pass is awesome. So I'd send the link out and the producer would be like, Hey, I think we can get on a zoom call for this. Can we just make the changes on the fly? And that, you know, I'd get on a zoom call. One, one fell in Montreal, one fell in Nashville and would make changes on the fly and we'd be done with it by six 30
0: and printing. So it was kind of amazing. It, it it is amazing how our technology allows us to work that way and i actually think that you know there 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 was that kind of old school approach i feel of like attended sessions are the only way to be in the studio and to work with the artist and now i feel like it's i, I personally i am with you on this i feel like non attended sessions work way, fa- way way better way faster and like there's less back and forth uh and and the whole idea of like your decisions being like they hear your, your final decision as opposed to like all the tra- troubleshooting and all that stuff. Like, I totally agree with all of that. I think that's such a big part of, of the mix process. You know, I, I even hate being that artist in the room. Like the couple times that I've worked with a <laughs> mixer, it's like, I'm hearing their decisions. I'm like, uh, I don't know about that, but it's like, you just have to reel it in a little bit and be like, okay, give it like 10 minutes. Like then, then the decision will be finalized. And then I can actually objectively hear this and, you know, <laughs> yeah,
1: exa- I mean, like, I don't want to be in the kitchen while the chef's making my food. Yeah, <laughs> Cause I don't want to see what it's like, oh, you're going to use that much cumin. You know, it's like, I don't want to be that person because they yeah. know what they're doing. Like, you know, I always try to tell people, look, you hired me for a reason because you've heard things that I've done that you like. Let me get to a certain point when you can kind of hear it closer to what you're envisioning. And I, and I encourage people to send any kind of reference Uh, I encourage, especially if I'm working with producers, when I get a rough from a producer that informs so much of what I do, because they're telling me if there's 20 guitar parts, they're telling me which two are the most important. True. Just, just by where the levels are. They're telling me like where they want the vocal sitting with the rest of the mix. They're telling me how much drive they want in the rhythm section. Just, just by the rough.
0: Sometimes. I think it really depends on obviously the, the set of the, the person making the rough mix, right? Well, that that's true, and it also sometimes depends on what the last
1: thing they recorded was, because it's always way too loud, or what instrument they play themselves. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's 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 its own thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I do. I usually do ask the producer, like, what what about this? What's the important thing here? Like, you know, like what should I be listening for in the rough? Is it the energy? Is it like the levels? Like, what is the thing? Um, and usually, it's like. Yeah, you know, there'll be like one or two things that they'll comment on, but they're like, we just want to like make sure it feels good. You know, so like we want it to sound better than this, but feel like this. Mm -hmm. And I mean, how many times have you pulled up after working on a mix, you pull up a rough mix and listen to it and it sounds horrendous and it feels awesome. It's true. (laughs) It happens a lot. So it's really like that's one of the reasons why I like having the rough there is because I'm always trying to match that energy of it. You know, except for my own roughs, because
0: I make, I make the worst roughs ever. I really do. <laughs> but, is that, but is that just because you know that you're going to eventually give it a serious... That's exactly more, why. Like a serious mixed approach, right? That's exactly why. That, that and,
1: you know, I think subconsciously I'm setting myself a low bar. <laughs> it's not a bad so way, way to we, do it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you know, right? Um, but yeah, I think, I think mostly it's because I'm doing roughs at the end of a long tracking day. And it's like, oh, I have to go back over the sessions and do a rough. Let me just get levels somewhat balanced and put a limiter on it and we're good. You know, so, so I don't really, I only put care into the roughs when someone's like, hey, can you like, can you like take a day and just put some roughs together? In which case, like, I'll actually put some care into it. And at that point, I'm kind of pre-mixing it, you know, and, and you probably have the same thing, Mike, where like mixing isn't linear anymore where, like, you can work on something, and, like, if you get to the point where it's like, oh, I'm kind of stuck on this, you can move on to another song and then come back to it with it's a fresh true. perspective. Sure, You can definitely
0: refresh your brain and just... And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why, personally, I use a lot of reference tracks, too, where, you know, I'm I'm always referencing material as I mix because I just find that that helps calibrate my ears. And when I've, when I've burnt out from listening to something a million times over and over again, it's just, like, by putting something else on, I've just reset my ears, and, and if I flip back and forth, I can quickly hear the big differences between... My, yeah. my, my mix and, and
1: and the reference, right? Well, that that's like one thing that I try to get across to all my students is like put a playlist together. If you've got title, if you've got Spotify, whatever it might be, have a playlist of at least eight to 10 songs that you know, sound great and you know, inside and out so that when you're listening to your own stuff, you can calibrate that also so that when you're like in a different room and working with other people, you can listen to it and get a sense of what's coming out of their speakers and what might be there, what might be lacking that type of thing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's a big one there for sure. I think that's also another reason why personally I prefer to do the non attended sessions because most people don't know what my room sounds like. They don't know what my speakers react, how my speakers react. So, you know, what may sound bassy to them is actually perfect to me, you know, or, or what might be thin is actually perfect, you know, like, so, Well, so, so have you heard the, wow, it sounds so different in here. Yeah. (laughs) All the time. Oh, it sounds like, yeah, more, more professional or something. It's like, well, well, sometimes I hear that. And then sometimes (laughs) I hear like, oh, it sounds like, well, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, it sounds horrible. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that we can never account
1: for is what our clients are listening on. Yeah. So I always tell people, give it, give it at least three listens, listen in three different places. You know, if you're going to listen in your car, listen at home listen on earbuds, whatever it might be, realize that if you're noticing the same, if you have an issue with something and it's the same issue on all three, then that's something that I'm going to address. If you're hearing different things happen on all three, that's probably the system itself. Gotcha. And and, and most likely when it comes to like mastering time, if we can address some of those issues and mitigate them a little bit, mastering is going to kind of even things out so that, you're feeling, you're not hearing it the same way, but you're feeling it the same way in all, in all of those systems.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that that's a really, really good point. Um, just about getting accurate mix revision notes and just, you know, making that process easier because so many people just listen to a song once or twice and immediately come up with their opinion of it. And it's like, well, no, you have to listen to it on different systems to actually get a sense of really how it translates and you know, what's, what's actually going on. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and, I think it's fine to take notes after like the first listen, but that's like a knee jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. I think, I think you almost need to give it at least three listens to really wrap your head around it, you know, yeah. and really get a sense of like what the vibe is that's there. You know, I mean, granted, it, you know, if you listen the first time and there's something that egregiously jumps out at you, you should address it. But, you know, most of the time, there are things that might jump out to someone on a first listen that by the time they get to the third listen, their ears are kind of attuned to it. You know, our our ears are really adaptable and that comes through nature. It's like, you know, when we were foraging through the, through the woods, you know, as, you know, Neanderthal or even early human, we would hear a sound and instantly get alerted by it. And then once we saw what the sound was and saw that it wasn't a danger, our ears would adapt to it. And that's great for survival. It sucks for mixing. Because <laughs> there's so many times like if you're mixing something and you notice something where it's like, "Oh, that like that's a really harsh like, you know, really harsh like 6k that I'm getting out of the overheads and you don't address it right away, your ears will get used to that 6k." Of course. And you won't go back and adjust it. So that's probably another important note which is like if you have an issue right away, stop what you're doing, address that and then come back to the other thing.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that sometimes because I I do think that there's I, I like I believe that there's a problem with searching for problems, which is that you always find a problem. Yeah. And and Oh, it just I'm not talking like about ser- I'm not
1: talking about searching for problems. I'm talking about a problem jumping out and hitting you in Fair, the face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't like searching for problems. And I and and I'm sure you've had the clients that do I call it the squinty eyed listen. When they just zoom in like this and they're like, they're basically like trying to focus on what's wrong with things as opposed to letting the music wash over them. Yeah. You know, I've got one client who, um, he's, he's in a band where all five band members live in four different States and he's from New Hampshire. Uh, and the band was like formed in New Hampshire. They were kind of a jam band in, you know, in the early two thousands. So whenever I'm working with him on either the band stuff or his solo stuff, he stands behind me with his eyes closed. When he listens to a final mix, he's standing there and I can, I can literally watch him and see what he's hearing. So like he'll like air drum or he'll air guitar and (laughs) I can tell it's one of two things. Either he's loving the groove of it or he wants to feel more of it. So, and it's just like his gut reaction while not like focusing on it, but just letting the music wash over him yeah. and become an experience.
0: And and that's, and that's ultimately like one of the best ways to listen. Right? Just yeah. let it, just let it become an experience. Cause if you're, yeah, if you are focused on like what's happening on the screen or whatever, you get distracted by all these other things that take you out of that moment.
1: Yeah. And, and that's why like I, whenever someone's like, oh yeah, the purple ones is a little weird there. Don't look at the screen. Close your yeah. eyes. You know, and <laughs> I do I do this with singers with, with comping and stuff. Anytime I hear them call out a color, it's like, okay, close your eyes and just listen to it and I'm going to play both back to back and they'll be like, "Oh, I can't hear a difference."
0: I I have a I have a client who she she loves the vocal editing process because she's just so fascinated by it, but she pays attention to the screen all the time and like it's just like oh that one's out of tune. I was like no it's not just just because it's not perfectly like centered on this like thing in Melodyne doesn't mean it's like it sounds bad you know. So oh it's like, yeah. You sometimes you just turn off the screen it's like okay this actually sounds good listen to this it. like <laughs> or turn around.
1: <laughs> I I've I've had that happen to myself so I get that you know and and I don't like tuning with the singer in the room. I'd rather I'd rather not even let a singer know whether I tune three notes or 3000 notes. I'd rather just kind of let it, let it be. And if I send it to them and they're like, Oh, this feels a little weird. Then usually what I do is just take the tuning off because it was, it was the natural thing that we liked in the comp. So we go with the comp. Um, and I've been really fortunate to work with some great, great singers over the years. So tuning can be held to a minimum with a lot of it. Um, and and sometimes it's really just kind of conforming the background vocals to fit where the lead's sitting. You know, I always talk about, like, Joe Barisi used to tell this story about Back Back in Black, where he's like, you know, like, for me, like, elbow to elbow is about 30 inches. And and I'm going to make an old reference, everyone. This is, this is about one second of tape back in the day. So at 30 inches, you'll have a kick hit right in the middle, but you might have a bass hit a little early and guitars hit a little late. And then you've got a downbeat that's that big and it sounds that big. Like if you listen to back in black, there's including the vocal there's five instruments happening at any one time. And it sounds enormous and it's, you know, part of its arrangement, but part of it is just the feel of that band. There's no rock band that feels better than ACDC. You know, it's just a big fat groove Mm -hmm. and you could, you know, you could use like a stacks reference, because Booker T and the MGs, it's the same kind of feel. You know, you could you could go to Jailhouse Rock, you could go to wherever you want to go. Not everyone's hitting on a downbeat. Like the downbeat is, you know, there's a there's a teacher I work with, John Wynott, who used a phrase that I've co-opted and will co-opt forever. Time is an agreement between the musicians. So the downbeat isn't a specific point in time. It's a range of time. And it's where everyone feels that downbeat that makes that band feel like it's grooving. Gotcha. And as soon as you start editing that, as soon as you start saying, oh, the bass and drums have to hit at exactly the same point, then all of a sudden you really got to sharpen the transience on everything so you can hear everything more. And then you get music that's really hard to listen to sometimes. This happened a lot in like the late 90s through like the mid two thousands where things would be edited to the nth degree so that everything was hidden at exactly one point. And we'd lost the, we lost a lot of groove there, you know, yeah. but then, but then you've got stuff, you know, weirdly enough, the people that weren't doing things like that were like Timbaland because he would shift his, he would, he would make a groove and then shift things around. Jay Dilla would just play everything by hand, mm-hmm. you know, Even like D'Angelo, if you listen to Voodoo, like Voodoo is like one of my favorite records of all time. And just the grooves on Voodoo just feel so good because they weren't just chopped to the nth degree. Yeah. There was a feel and a vibe to them.
0: So I'm curious to to get your opinion on the editing process then because – there are so many different philosophies on editing and whether it should be locked to the grid or just you should leave everything untouched or whatever. How do you typically go about your editing sessions then? Are, are you editing every note, but leaving that space kind of like, are you not, not quite quantizing 100%, leaving things loose? Like how, how do you factor in that that kind of natural agreement of where that downbeat is?
1: So you ask an interesting question and I'm going to give a very cryptic answer of saying it depends. <laughs> uh, it it kind of depends on the artist and their sensibilities. Like I, I, I don't want to be Svengali on things, but usually what I'll do is, you know, if I'm working on something with a live band, you know, if I'm going to do any kind of beat detective to the drums, I'm going to beat map the drums first so that the downbeat for every downbeat follows wherever the kick drum or wherever the downbeat, the drummer hits follows. Gotcha. And then you're tempo
0: mapping everything so that it has a little bit more of a, it's not just the same tempo throughout the entire track. Exactly. So there's like like an ebb and
1: flow to it. And one of the great things with that is if I'm doing that and the drummer played to, you know, a loop or something, I'll have the loop set to, to ticks and put on elastic time. And then the loop will conform to whatever the groove that the drummer's doing is. So however long the bar is for the drummer, the loop becomes that long. Gotcha. So that there's a little ebb and flow to everything. Um, and if people end up not liking it, I'll go back and just, you know, I'll go back and just destroy the thing and, you know, slam it right to whatever tempo they want, but usually it feels better. Usually it feels better. And then at that point, if I've got to edit anything else, it's based on whatever the drummer played. And then if, if we have a late snare hit or a fill that rushes and it doesn't feel good, then I'll go in and make it feel good. But sometimes it feels good and you don't want to edit it. You know, you just have to like, listen to it. You have to listen to it without a click and see what it feels like. And at, and at that point, if it feels good, then great. That's awesome. If, if it doesn't feel good, listen to just the drums and bass together and see how they feel. Cause really that's the foundation of everything rhythmically. That's going to be happening on most tracks, any tracks that have drums and bass. Usually that's the foundation for it. Um, so if, if that feels good, great. If it doesn't, is it the drums or the bass? It's always, you know, it's, I always say we all have a little Sherlock Holmes in us. So, so we're always trying to like solve the mystery. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to solve anything that doesn't need to be solved. Like if something feels good and I chop the hell out of it so that it's aligned with a grid and we lose the feel of it. Well, that's, that's no fun. Yeah. That sounds horrible. Um, And, and it's really interesting how, you know, 20, 25 years ago, that whole paradigm kind of flipped where everyone was editing, you know, rock bands to a grid and country bands to a grid, but yet the hip hop stuff had all this movement to it, despite the fact that there were no live instruments on the hip hop tracks.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. There's been such a shift. And I love what you said about um, the idea of like, when everything is, when everything is completely locked to the grid, you you do have to make up for that transient sound and i mm-hmm. and i do feel like that's why these days like i feel like snare drums are just like just pure attack half the time you know yeah. like, it's like people just put transient designers on everything and they're just cranking the attack and that's just kind of become the sound of you know like mo- a lot of rock music or like metal music especially it's just like clicking and it, there's, there's no real tone to it and it's like people are kind of finding these weird ways of get of makeshifting that by like adding a transient designer, get that get that clicky attack sound and then crank the shit out of your top end with your EQ and then adding some saturation to try to get a little bit more body out of it. And it's like we're finding all these ways to make up this like artificial tone that could probably be better off just with a little bit more natural groove, right?
1: Meanwhile, if you put a mic on the top and the bottom of the snare and don't touch it and you have a great drummer, then you don't have to worry about that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but it's like, but, but the, the sound of of a snare drum, for example, in most modern metal music these days, sounds nothing like what a real mic sounds like. And it, and it's partially just because we've become so used to that, that process sound of like all the transient designers and uh, saturation and clipping. I mean, and hell, stuff.
1: you could say that about kick drums for the past 50 plus years. True. No kick drum. I, I've, I've been in the room with kick drums and none of them sound like what most records sound like. <laughs> you yeah. just uh, like we're you know we've got this exaggerated low end and i'm not knocking it at all because i love getting a kick drum sound like that i think it's really great and and i think there is something to that especially w- when you're talking about metal there is something to that you know the idea that you know we've essentially created a metal sound because of that mm-hmm. because kicks and snares are so different and and honestly metal is so different to work on than any other genre because most of the genres I work on, with like singer songwriter, indie rock, modern country, um, you know, some dream pop stuff, uh, the vocals really up front on a lot of it. And with metal, nothing's really up front because everything's up front. It's almost like it's coming at you down a tunnel as fast as it can. It's like you're driving into the most coordinated traffic jam that you can yeah. ever imagine. You know, uh, there was a guy who. Uh, worked here uh he did uh, a revocation record like 10 years ago and i heard one of the revocation mixes he was doing and i was like i finally get how metal works because you're getting this kick and snare here but these guitars are here and the bass is kind of like filling the low octave of the of the guitars and then the vocals just like in it it's like in it with everything else so like, it feels like everything is coming at you like with both hands
0: mm-hmm. and yeah, it's I- awesome i i recently interviewed uh an engineer named chris baseford he's nickelback's main guy and uh and i love the way he put it he described like mixing as like the goal is to make cartoon mixes where it's just like <laughs> it's not real it's just everything it has like a process kind of thing and that's what that's what ultimately the sound is these days of, of like heavy rock
1: yeah yeah or or you know like i would say marvel mixes
0: yeah yeah because everything feels cgi
1: <laughs> but it's that same it's that same type of attitude where like i think well i, I if you're talking about bands like nickelback it's a little different because the vocals up front true you know and it's a little closer to like a quote-unquote traditional type of mix where there is a hierarchy to where the instruments sit and i feel i just feel like metal is an attack on your senses yeah <laughs> and, and and like have you ever have you ever heard the band elder I've heard of them. I've never actually listened to them. They're amazing. Uh, My friend, Justin Pitsferrato does all their stuff uh, and they are incredible, just incredible. They do their entire record in like four days. Wow. And, you know, it's that, it's that same thing where it's just that there's this movement that goes to it because their stuff is kind of prog metal. So like there's nine to 12 minute songs with this kind of journey that it takes you through. It just, there's, it blows my mind because I never get to work on stuff like that. I'm always working on stuff where like, Hey, can we get the vocal a DB louder? And I've already got the vocal at DB louder than I would have it. <laughs> and I like a loud vocal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, but I guess that, that is that balance of the artist creative vision and like, you know, the, um, your, your engineering take versus the, the artist's take yeah. and, and and kind of finding that happy medium.
1: Well, I think the thing that, the thing that I've found over the years is not necessarily to take notes literally, but to take them almost holistically where it's like they're looking for a certain thing to happen and they might be describing it in a way that doesn't make as much sense where they're saying this instrument's too bright. What they probably mean is this other instrument is too dark so that there's too much of a contrast Mm -hmm. or, you know, if they want to feel, if they want to feel a vocal louder, it might mean that there's like some harmonic instrument that's too loud crowding the vocal. You know, because like sometimes you bring the vocal louder and all of a sudden it's like the vocal like hovering over the music instead of sitting on top of it. And then you realize like, oh, if I just like scoop the mid-range out of this piano, then the vocal is going to sit in a place that works better. And then usually I send stuff like that and they're happier. So I try and I try and interpret what they're looking for out of the mix rather than just read the notes word for word. Because sometimes, you know, like. I always say um sometimes I get notes that I call Berkeley Bingo. Where like they've <laughs> learned buzzwords of mixes. So like if I see the words parallel, multiband, and sidechain all in the same note, it's like, oh, someone hit Berkeley Bingo. because <laughs> someone told them about parallel, multiband, and sidechain. So they want it they want to sound like they know how to mix by commenting on that.
0: You should just make a chart that you have in your studio at all time and just like with each session just check things off. <laughs> well, like I mean I,
1: I hate multiband compression. I can't stand it. I, I, the, 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 the phase issues that I hear at the crossovers is just too much for me. And for some reason, I don't have a problem with dynamic EQ, but I have a problem with multiband compression. I think (laughs) it's mostly because dynamic EQ, you can focus on a thing. Like if you've got an acoustic guitar player who gets a little heavy on, on the low E string, you can kind of focus where they're, you can find that note a little bit easier. Yeah, exactly. And then you can define the rest of it a little more and even it out. But like a multiband compressor, I always, every time I hear it, it just feels like a, it's too much. And, and B, I can hear like weird phasey stuff somewhere and like, oh, there's, there's the crossover and there's the crossover and nothing's happening there, but stuff's happening everywhere else. And it's causing all these issues. So I try and avoid it. Um, But you know, that's, that's like one of the, one of the things that I run into and on notes where, you know, people will make comments and I know what they're going for, but they're using language that doesn't really make sense to get them where they, what they, where they want to go.
0: Yeah. But I think that that is something that artists like people who aren't trained as engineers, they there's, there's always like a language struggle, I think between producers and the musicians or the other way around. And, and you know, when people are giving their, their, their their criticisms or their ideas or whatever, you know, if you do kind of have to understand each other's language to some degree, right? Otherwise it is just interpretation. And maybe sometimes interpretation actually ends up resulting in something cool because, you know, you go a different direction than maybe you thought it was, right? But totally, but often it can be like frustrating sometimes to, to, to really like fully understand exactly where someone's coming from, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I try and tell artists is when you're listening to it, don't worry about telling me what to fix or how to fix it, telling, tell me what you're feeling, what's taking you out of that and why it's taking you out of it. Cause if you tell me, if you give me a reason, I can find a way to fix it. If you're, if you're trying to, you know, like someone gave me a mix note yesterday, say saying, bring the vocal down 0.1 DB. It's like, you can't hear 0.1 DB, <laughs> you know? And, and I've had people say things like bring the bass up like five or six dB, just a little bit. It's like, do you realize that's like four times as loud as you're pr- going to want it? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's, I'm, I'm wondering if like, I'm wondering if you meant to put the decimal point somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, so, so instead of like, you know, giving me like specific decibel numbers, tell me like, oh, this is too loud. It's kind of taking me out of it. Can we have it sit in the mix a little more? Mm-hmm. And if you want to send me examples, that's great. Like I'm producing a track with an artist right now and we're doing it all remotely So she's sending me notes. It's like, oh, can we do something like this in the intro and then send me a link, you know? And then there's a song and it's like, oh yeah, I can try and find a pad that does that type of thing. It's like, oh, this part, I don't know what the problem is, but it doesn't feel as vast as I want it to. And it's like vast. So, so I'll say, are you talking about frequency or are you talking about width? And then she'll come back with an answer and then I'll try, I'll try both. And be like here's one version here's the other version and like we've we've gotten to a pretty good point you know it's like we're moving a lot of stuff back and forth but still it's it's kind of fun exploring these different options because she's not using any of the technical language she's just she's like i want this to like feel like it moves more or i want this to feel like it opens up and i'm like that's that's really cool because then you can use the tools to interpret that and go to a place that neither of you is expecting but it's yeah. hopefully better than what both of you thought.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, it's it's so important to have these lines of communication and just like make sure that you're trying to get on the same page as best as possible. Like you you mentioned that you got your start in bands and um, I'm assuming you play an instrument obviously if you, um, if you I'm a bass player. You're a bass player, okay. Yeah. How would you say like the your knowledge of bass has impacted the mu- the work that you do today? Like do you feel like it's helped you communicate better with musicians? I think I would say like my theoretical
1: knowledge helps a lot because sometimes I work with musicians that have no idea of theory and they play like a really cool chord and I'm like, what chord is that? And they don't know. So I'll like, well, will just play it and I'll take a look at the notes that they're playing and I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And I'll just jot it down because who knows, we might want to bring in like a string player and have them like spell the chord out Yeah, and they don't know what the chord is. So I'll be able to spell it out for them. So I try and like take notes on chords in a session as I'm working on it. Um,
0: Gotcha.
1: As much info as I can have in the session, I want it. Yeah. You know? Um, So like for me, it's been more, I think like there's something to being, you know, playing an instrument that isn't in the front that I think makes people listen more or I should say, listen more earlier. Cause I was always essentially the de facto music director in every band I was in. And when we were writing songs, I never really came up with parts. I was never a songwriter. Um, but like I would come up with parts like after, like if we had a great verse and chorus, I'd come up with a really cool bridge, you know? It's a good but it skill was, though. Yeah. Well, well, I think that was like, that was the big thing for me was like, I was, I got really good at arranging by being in bands and going like, Oh, well, the guitar player is going high. So I'm going to go lower and then I'm going to kind of reverse things. And then thinking about like, Oh, we should come in. We should come in at the first chorus and not at the beginning, or we should double this chorus at the end, or we should do a stop here. And that's where I think being in bands helped me understand structurally how songs worked and how to get more push and more impact out of songs. And that's translated more into production for me than, than the bass playing part of it, the bass playing part of it was kind of a vehicle to get there though. Yeah. So a lot of what I do when I'm working with artists, if I'm working with a solo artist, the, the palette is so wide. So I need to find out who they are as an artist. And, you know, everyone asks like, who are your influences? And like, a lot of times, you know, you know how it is when you're working with people, they're
0: like, oh, well, you know, it's really hard to define my thing. Nobody knows who they sound like. Nobody has, yeah. We're, we're all unique. We're all unique. It's yeah, like, I mean, no, you are not. <laughs> we're
1: we're all we're all unique. I mean, even the Beatles, who like at their time were the most revolutionary band of all time, uh, started off as a cover band. So, yeah. you know, that's just that's how it works. <laughs> that's how it works. Charlie Parker, when he was writing songs, would steal chord progressions from other songs and just write new melodies over them. So, you know, it's we we all we all take from other people. We And we become an amalgam of all these things, right? So mm-hmm. like the things that resonate with us, we we kind of morph them together and that's how we become who we are as artists. So usually what I say to, to artists is like, if you could open for three different people or three different acts, living or dead, who would they be? And I get a much better sense of like where they're at and where like they that. want their music to go. Yeah, it's-, it's That's it's, a really it's good a, question. It's It's a better thing than like, who are your three biggest influences? Because then they're going to throw out three things that- are not close to each other but like if someone comes to me and says oh you know I, i'd want to open for like bob dylan and uh carol king and amos lee i know where they want to go i get a sense of it you know um sorry i should have said city and color with being from toronto because like, ah,
0: like, <laughs> D-
1: dallas green's like one of my favorites anyway so yeah, he's pretty good. uh yeah so um when i hear stuff like that it's like okay now i know like what genre they fit in, what type of instrumentation is going to work for the thing that they're doing. And at that point, it's like, whatever you want to work on, like have like between two and three times as many songs as you want to record, ready to record. So like, if you want to do a five song EP, send me at least a dozen. I want to hear everything you got because a lot of times artists don't even know their best songs. It's true. Like I have an artist I'm working with right now that didn't even put a song in the Google drive that we're sharing because she's like, Oh, this song isn't anything. And when I brought it in to record and you know, I'm bringing her in with a guitar player and we're doing co-writes and I'm like, listen to the song that she wrote. And he was like, I wish I wrote that song. And she had no idea that that was, that she had no idea that that was her best song.
0: It's true. And a lot of times too, like artists are just, especially if they're the, the lyric writer, you know, it's like these songs are too personal. So I'm afraid to like put them out there. And then those are often the best songs because it's like, there's, there's emotion here. It sounds really good.
1: Yeah. And there's a level of passion and a level of dedication to it that there isn't on the other songs. I mean, you'd need to look no further than like Jason Isbell and Chris Stapleton to see that, like, this is the type of thing that resonates with people. You know what I mean? Like, this is the type of thing that draws people in. So usually I'll have an artist send me, you know, however many songs, like two to three times as many. We'll pick through the songs and then I'll listen structurally through them and be like, oh, this is a great song, but it takes like a minute and a half to get to the vocal. So maybe we should shorten that. Or like this part's a hook and they don't even know that it's a hook. So we've got to find a way to repeat that and, and make that more of a mantra. So we'll go through kind of the structural things and and I'll sit down with them with that and just work through the song structure. And then we'll talk about instrumentation. And I try not to necessarily like, I'm not, there are different types of producers, right? So there are people like Michael Beinhorn who says, I want to know every note that's going to be played before we even step in and before I hit record on anything. And then there are people, you know, like Dave Cobb who don't do any pre-production at all. Mm -hmm. He just hears the songs and brings people in and they work on them in-house. And I kind of fall somewhere in between that, I think, where I know the instrumentation I want to bring in. I know the, you know, I have an idea of the players that I think are going to be good fits. And then when we bring things in, I want to hear what everybody's going to play. So I'll just send them the song and tell them like, you know, we're thinking about making this a ballad or we're thinking about picking the energy up on this one, but that's it. I'm not going to give them like, you come in here, you come in here. I want to hear what it sounds like when we get like four or five people in a room together and play through things because someone might take it someplace that I never thought it could go. And then all of a sudden that's going to shift all of our, all of our ideas a little bit.
0: Yeah. Well, there's something to be said for just like listening to the songs as a, as a listener, as a fan and not being Mm -hmm. super technical about it. Right. And just like letting, letting the, the, the energy of the song and the feel of the song dictate the vibe of it as, as opposed to trying to artificially create it or, or, you know, molding it a certain way.
1: Yeah. Well, well also there's this idea that like, you know, I work with a drummer who I'd love um, who's, you know, he's played on David Bowie records. He's played on, you know, he's played on songs that went number one on billboard. Who am I to tell him what the right drum part is for a song? You know, I'm going to tell him if it's, if it's the wrong drum part, cause it's going to take us out of the mood. But if he comes up with an idea, it's like, Oh, he was feeling that double time or he was feeling the snare. Like, hit the end of two instead of two. Like that's kind of cool. And that's something that I wouldn't have thought of. And the song becomes better for it. So I don't want to like Svengali all these songs. I want to get other people's takes on things. And I really love the vibe of having as many people in the room as possible. So I love the idea of like tracking together. I even love the idea of overdubbing together. If I've got two people who are doing overdubs, let's track it together and let's, let's get a vibe and feel on it. Yeah. Like I did that recently for a thing where I had, um, great keyboard player and a great guitar player in here. And, you know, the guitar player, the guitar player who I brought in is, is pretty widely known as the best guitar player in Boston. And he sent me an email afterwards. He goes, man, I'd love the whole idea of tracking with somebody else. It's like, I knew, I knew where I had to go and he knew where he had to go and we were just communicating through it. Yeah, and I was like, that's, that's the best compliment you can get.
0: You it kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier with like the the idea of um you know agreeing on the downbeat and I think mm-hmm. especially with drummers it, when you were talking about it it made me think of um the the idea of like you know you we tend to give drummers a click track to play to and it's like your goal is to lock into this click track play as tightly as you can to that but then if we give people like a scratch guitar track or we let them jam with another musician. There's always that natural feel that like, you know, most of the time you just, most if it's a scratch guitar track, most of the time it's just like, you're not trying to get it exactly perfect. You're just like, just lay something down as a quick idea for reference. But yeah. I've got a lot of drummers play to that as opposed to the click track. Cause that's I just, do the same thing, right? exactly so, the same thing. Yeah. So well, there's that kind of like unspoken, like this is the downbeat here because I'm playing yeah. to, to this. Well, also when if I'm having someone
1: lay down a scratch track and they're like, well, I want to have something to help me keep time. I'm going to throw a drum loop in. So I'm just going to grab a drum loop instead of a click and have them play to that. Cause they'll groove better. Yeah, for sure. Like, like the groove will just feel better. Yeah. Um, because like, honestly, we don't like, we're mostly tapping our foot on the backbeat anyway. <laughs> so like true. He- hearing the downbeat is like a thing, but like, you know, I saw a video of Carol, Carol K, um, doing like playing a bass line where the, the click was on the backbeat and i was like oh man this is this is going to change everything but nobody <laughs> no one can do it cuz we're so used to hearing it on the downbeat it's true
0: it's funny i used like as a drummer myself i i found the click tracks just I don't know. They just weren't exciting to me, you know, like it, yeah. it, something about that. And so I found personally, I would always come to the studio. I I would program a drum beat, just a yeah. simple, like just a simple pattern. So I had like my hi-hats doing like my 16th notes and, you know, kick on one and three or one and three and stare on two and four. And like to me, like it was just like I can groove to that a lot easier because it's it felt like playing to another musician. And I also was able to like have these different um, sub sub bars uh, there's some uh, time divisions in my, in my groove that I can like lock into. I could hear the 16th of the hat or like, you know, just like feel the normal kick pattern that I would play or something like that, you know? And yeah. And I found that that worked great as far as just like making it feel natural still.
1: Totally. Totally. Well, uh, there's, I have a click, I kind of have a click that I've set that, that is one, two and three, four and so one,
0: like two boom, and three, four. Okay. Boom. Ch-ch, boom. Ch-ch, boom. Gotcha. Ch-ch.
1: So, so it kind of you know, it does create a little bit of that movement, but now I want to add a 16th note hi-hat to it.
0: Yeah, to me, I just found that that helped. Like, it just I was able to always find the beat. Like, I always knew the one, because maybe I had like a, I don't know, I would maybe throw a cowbell or something like that just on a one, just so I knew where it was, you know? But like, hearing a natural drum groove, to me, it was like, if I can't hear the drums anymore, then I'm locked in time. That was kind of the way I looked at it. Like yeah, I, I, if I could cover up all of these things that I hear in this loop, then I am locked in. And it was kind of more of a challenge to play that way. Totally.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great idea.
0: And I also found that whenever we did scratch tracks with that that click track or that click loop, then people played better because they were hearing real drums as opposed to a click track as well. Totally, totally.
1: Well, I wanted to I actually wanted to get back because you mentioned that whole idea of time being in agreement. Because yeah. we were talking about tuning. Yes. And I feel the same way about pitch. You know, like if you go see a forty piece orchestra and everyone's hitting their A, not like maybe two people are hitting A440. Everyone's kind of hovering between like A four thirty two and four forty eight. And that's what makes that that A feel so big. That's what makes those chords feel big. It's not the fact that you're getting everyone hitting like if we if we're gonna just have everyone hit at the same note, why don't we just have sine waves at that point? You know, it's like it's the complexity of that that thickness that really you know makes that note feel so thick and so big. So tuning everything exactly to pitch, it doesn't. It it makes about as much sense as editing everything to a grid to me. Where like if I've got two singers and they're within like three cents of each other, they're gonna sound in tune. They're gonna sound like they're there. Um, and also like I grew up listening to Led Zeppelin and did Robert Plant hit any note in tune when he was singing in Led Zeppelin? <laughs> I mean, he's it's he, I mean, I love Robert Plant and I actually think he's an even more amazing singer. Now he's kind of blowing my mind with the stuff he's doing with Allison Krauss, but like he was reaching for notes that he wasn't quite getting to.
0: Yeah. There's a reason he can't, there's a reason he can't do it live anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and honestly, that's what made the songs feel so exciting. It's like, you know, if someone's like a little flat on a high note, it's almost like you feel the anguish a little bit more,
0: you Mm -hmm. know?
1: So I, you know, I try to be as, I try to be as liberal as possible with this, where I'm not just going in and hitting every single thing. And I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. Mike. like the bypass button is your friend. Yeah. Like you tune a pass and then you listen to it untuned and listen to it tuned And sometimes the untuned is better, so you put it back to where it was. For sure. Or sometimes you tune one note instead of three.
0: And I think that that's where your question of, like, which bands would you want to open for, that can really dictate a lot of these decisions that you're going to make moving forward, you know, as far as how how tightly to edit your drums or your your guitars or whatever, or even your vocals, how, to, how tightly to tune them as well. You know, if someone's like, oh, I want something that sounds like Katy Perry or something like that. It's like, okay, well, those are pretty processed, so we'll have to yep. go tighter on them. You know, if mm-hmm. someone's like, oh, I want it to sound like Zeppelin, then you can have a little bit more leeway with, with how loose you can go with it, right? Yeah, and usually those two are
1: not in the same context Not normally, yes, yeah. <laughs> so, so you can get a sense like pretty easily through stuff like that, where it's like, you know... If someone says, yeah, I want to do pop music. Well, what is pop music to you? If pop music is Dua Lipa, then you've got to go pretty hard and heavy at it. True. You know, if, if pop music is, you know, John Mayer, it's a little different, little different vibe. Yeah. You know, so it, it does, it's, it's a wide swath. So that's why it's always hard just to go by genre and say like, oh, I consider myself a pop artist or a rock artist or a country artist or an R and B artist because now those genres have so many subgenres that we've got such a wide swath to go from.
0: Yeah. But, but again, that's why I think that that question that you ask your is is so important because it, it does give you so much clarity in terms of, you know, what, what are the vocals going to sound like? What are the, um, what kind of tones are you going to get for guitars or bass or whatever, you know, that kind of thing.
1: I, I totally agree. And, and with all of that, I'm, I'm basically looking for my artist to say this came out even better than I expected. And it's exactly what I was looking for. You know, like that, like so many, I'm working with a couple of artists right now who have horror stories of producers that they've worked with that that just tried to imprint their sensibility on the artist's entire vibe, you know? And I never want to be that person. I always, I always try and remember the idea that like on a piece of vinyl, the artist's name is really big on the front and the producer's name is really small on the back and just kind of remember (laughs) that as an order of importance for whose opinion really matters with this. So, you know, if we're trying something and I feel really strongly about it and the artist is like, I'm not feeling it, I'll, you know, I'll mute the track or I'll be like, let's wait until we get it to a level where it makes sense in context rather than while we're recording and scrutinizing it. And then if they still don't like it, it's why we have mute buttons, you know, that's why, that's why we try different, different approaches to things. If someone's not feeling something, it's not, it's not on me to, to push it upon them.
0: Absolutely. hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, So I'd love to just shift briefly to just talking a little bit more about your mixing process. And I'm curious to know, like when you start your mixes, what's your typical approach? Like, do you have a, like a mindset of how you're going to tackle every mix or or a a workflow that you typically go with? What what does that look like to you?
1: Yeah, I do. I, I have a template with way, way too much stuff in it. So like I've got, I've got a template where I basically have no audio tracks in the template. It's all just, Oxes and vcas and i've got one audio track the one i print to um and i usually just i usually start off by getting levels and pans if they're not already set in the session if i'm getting a session from someone else usually they've done you know just like a basic static mix on it that i can start with if it's a pro tools mix that i can start with and feels good and if not i have the rough mix and i'm really just trying to dial in like if they've done something in Logic or Ableton or Studio One or anything like that I can just kind of pull stuff up and dial it in close to where their rough is and and I'll start there and then import my template stuff and then just route stuff to the subgroups and I try to do as little processing as possible honestly like you know, I'll do, lev- I'll do EQ and, and compression to stuff. I'll distort things. I love distorting things. I say I don't try not to process much, but I distort so many <laughs> things in a mix. Um, some things just need the excitement. I love distortion on bass, even on pop songs. Because Me too. It just, it just, the fundamental is always heard. And then the upper harmonic stuff just makes the blend with the other harmonic instruments so much more exciting. And you don't hear it as distorted bass. Almost never. Unless of the parts like really pared down. So, so I have like three distortion plugins on my, on my base channel and I have, I have everything bypassed when I import it. Yeah. And then I'll just start like muting and unmuting stuff. Like all my reverb channels have like seven or eight different reverbs on them. And I'll just try different things and be like, this might feel right. If we change the settings, no, it doesn't feel right. Let's switch to this other thing. Um, so I always kind of start off in that point. I've got, you know, I've got parallel buses for a lot of stuff. I know I just made fun of parallel like a half hour ago, <laughs> but, uh, but I have parallel processing for each kind of family of instrument. And sometimes those will mix and match. Like there's times where like, I really have the guitars happening, but when the vocal comes in, it drowns out. So I'll just feed the vocal into the guitar bus and it'll push the guitars down a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I do a lot of that type of processing. I never solo when I'm mixing. The only time I, I shouldn't say never, because you never say never, but I solo only if I'm trying to find out where the problem is, but gotcha. I never try and fix anything in solo. Yeah. I try and fix it while I'm listening to the rest of the
0: track. And that kind of connects to what you said about the bass. And, and I, I firmly believe this, that like, I love distortion on bass as well. And if you listen to a bass in solo on any of my mixes, it sounds super distorted. But yeah. But then you throw it in a mix and it's like, all of a sudden it sounds natural. You know, you don't even know. Yeah, exactly.
1: It. Exactly. And And it, And it, it saves you from having to EQ a ton because the distortion allows you to do that right off the bat. Um, and it saves you from having to do way too much extra processing on things. So I find distortion really helpful for stuff like that. I find distortion really helpful on synths for the same reason. Um, and, and sometimes even strings and horns, like live strings and horns, it can, if they're in a denser mix, it can really help. Um, And, and vocals, obviously, because, you know, for me, anytime I'm mixing, if I'm working on like EQ and compression on something, I start with the vocal always gotcha because I used to start with drums because that's just how you do. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was always like a bottom up approach, but now I start with vocals and then go immediately to drums. Gotcha. Because like, I I used to build a track and then get to the vocal and then I'd have to go back and adjust all the other tracks to fit the vocal, and now I just start with like I have my vocal fader at zero, and I'm bringing everything else up to kind of match where the vocal fader is, which saves me from like overloading my mix my mix bus, because if my vocal fader is at zero and nothing can get louder than that, then I can't push the other tracks up too high. Interesting. I like so that. So I'm always thinking of like pulling stuff back, and I'm always that's why I I start always with subtractive EQ. Makes Always sense. start, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm one whose natural inclination is to compress after EQ. And I know a lot of people compress before EQ. Either way works. There's no right or, right or wrong answer. But I'm usually compressing after EQ because I'm subtracting the problems in in my track. You know, the things that are taking away from the the essence of what the track is. And then my compression isn't dealing with those things at all. It's just dealing with the new sound that I have. And I find like, I find like the compressors have to work a little bit less because they're not hitting those problem areas as much. They're just hitting a track that to me feels better already. I agree Uh, with that for sure. Yeah. And and when I do acoustic drums, I start with overheads. Interesting. Uh, It's the same reason why I start with vocals. Like I'd, I'd do all my close mics and then EQ my overheads, and then I'd have to go back and redo my close mics. I
0: think it's one of those uh, things where it's like the the idea of mixing your drums first, at least the way I view it, because I, I do do drums first, and I kind of think of my drums as like providing a lot of the low end and the low yeah. end feel. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you looked at it from the perspective of doing vocals first, you can almost look at it from the opposite side where it's like you're kind of focusing on the top end clarity first, and then you wrap wrapping everything else around that. And... and
1: It's sort of that way, but, but in a sense, I'm kind of doing the same thing you're doing, just keeping the vocal in mind the whole time. So, so I go straight to drums and bass right after I do the vocal because I do want to get my low end right, but I want to get my low end right, knowing that my vocal is already there. And if I'm doing any shaping on overheads or ambient mics, making sure that the stuff that's making those things sound good, isn't interfering with my vocal. Gotcha. And, then get, and then getting my, when I get my bass and drums in really good shape, if you've got your bass, your drums, and your vocals, like really sitting well, then your mix is at least halfway done. Like that's the foundation of your mix. That's like the central nervous Agreed. system of everything. Like to me, there's four things that are in the middle of my mix. Everything else is panned. It's the lead vocal. It's the snare and it's the low end. It's the kick and bass because it's the melody it's the backbeat and it's the foundation so if you think about any kind of modern music people either want to sing along or rap along with the words they want to have a backbeat that they can dance to and they want to have a low end that they can bump and if you've got that together everything else is kind of how you want to dress the mannequin up gotcha so If you, if that foundation is there, it's like pretty simple. Like those are the things that are holding everything together. If the next thing you, you have helps that turn it up. If it doesn't turn it down. And if turning it up and turning it down is either too drastic a move, put some EQ on it and add something or subtract something. Start with subtracting. And if subtracting doesn't do what you want, start pushing some stuff.
0: Yep. Yep. It's like it's a corrective it's a corrective thing and then you're you're getting rid of all the, the flaws of the track and then you're you're adding the, the sparkle on top of exactly.
1: it. Exactly. I I always feel like it's it's kind of the same reason why you edit before you mix. You're trying to get rid of the problems first, and then you of course. can get creative.
0: it's editing before you mix is so important. And I think yeah. it's it's it for multiple reasons. One is that your your tracks will just sound tighter and better and cleaner just without even adding any processing you know, if you've, if you've edited things, all of a sudden you've corrected all those, you know, I know we've talked about leaving things loose, but like you can correct a lot of those loosenesses or I don't know if that's a word, but, but, uh, all those things that are loose, that are kind of creating problems in, in the EQ and the frequencies and all that, they they tighten up when you, when you just edit it, it's a little bit tighter. And then that makes mixing so much easier. Well, that's, that's exactly right. Like if, if your
1: bass and drums are tight, you have less to worry about with conflicting frequencies or anything like that. If your bass and drums are sitting right and feel good together. And it's, it it's, it's the same thing to me. It's the same thing with the subtractive EQ thing. If you, if you're taking those problems away, all of a sudden your mix is going to sound better with less compression, sometimes with less distortion, sometimes with fewer effects because everything's holding together. And then everything else that you do, you can focus on being creative with it and ex- and kind of expanding a little bit. And of course, you know, m- creating more motion, you know, because everything in a mix, we're really dealing with four things, right? We're dealing with level EQ, panning and time-based effects. Everything else we're doing is a subset of those things. And that's creating height, width and depth in a mix. And the great thing about that is that You know, the great thing about any modern art really is 10 seconds into it, it can be completely different than it is when it starts. So you're creating this three-dimensional image that moves in and out in all three of these dimensions and kind of breathes and undulates and creates this motion that is always grabbing your ear in one way or another. You're telling a story and you're trying to enhance the story that's being told in the song by approaching your mix in the same way.
0: I love that, and I, I also love how you said that, like you have your your main elements in the middle, like your kick snare vocals, bass, and and it's like, and then you kind of just focus on panning from there, panning in levels. Yeah, and, and I think that that's such an easy way to approach it because so many people just do leave everything in the middle or try or they're trying to make everything fit in the middle, and and then you lose all of that depth and that width that you that you were just talking about as well.
1: Well, I I got a mix note recently where someone said, "Hey, can we pan this guitar to the center?" And I responded with, I'll pan the guitar to to the center. If you can play me an example of a song that you want like this, that has a guitar panned in the center. And they couldn't find one. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) Yeah. So like center, no, a little closer to the middle. Yes. But center, no. Like I've been, ai have I've really been doing over the past like year or two, I've really been doing straight up like LCR mixing except for like background vocals and like percussion elements. They, they sometimes find a way in the middle, but like anything else is kind of really going hard left or right. And I've been liking the results, but I'm thinking of taking some stuff back and finding, finding spaces. Cause I used to do stuff where like my verse guitars would sit in and my chorus guitars would sit out. So all of a sudden it creates this. It grows a little. Yeah. Yeah. It creates this whole like width movement that just happens naturally because the tracks are panned that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different philosophies on that, and I've also kind of taken on a little bit more of that LCR method as well. And I find that like, you know, there's only so much you can, only so far right and left you can go. So then it's like, yeah. okay, well, how do I make something? How do I make something sound bigger? And 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 often I'll find that with like things like background vocals or synths or whatever, it's like let's throw some chorus on there, and like that that all of a sudden makes things feel a little bit bigger. It gives you that modulation, you know. Yeah. So yep. And and everybody,
1: be careful with your imagers
0: true. Sure. <laughs> I had
1: something that, you know, I, I, I use imagers on sometimes on parallel buses to help pull some of the harmonic stuff out. But then if you go to a mastering engineer and they put an imager on it, all of a sudden it can feel like the center kind of sinks in a little bit. So I've had a couple of things where I, I sent stuff to a mastery engineer where I was like, Hey, can you just take the imager off so that the snare punches you in the face? Cause right now it feels like it's kind of pulling the track in a little bit. Um, and it's, you know, it's just something that you need to be judicious with. You can't just, you can't just throw some of this stuff up there. And, you know, I know some of this stuff, some of the clients that I, that I work with have learned a little bit about mixing from YouTube tutorials and you have to be careful with the YouTube tutorials. Of course. Because any, you know, any, any. Any idiot who knows how to operate their webcam can do a YouTube tutorial, but you know, like Mike, you have a track record, you know, you've got a podcast, you're talking to people who also have a track record. You know, this isn't just like you're. yeah, this isn't, this is a podcast that's focused on this type of thing that really deals with it. This isn't just someone in their bedroom making, you know, making a track and just saying, oh yeah, we'll just slam everything through a limiter and it works fine. Of course.
0: You know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah. So, So, although sometimes those comments are
1: entertaining to look at. (laughs) Oh, oh, it's it's uh, it can be unintentional comedy at its best. Yeah, at times. As long as you know better. (laughs) Yeah, but but there are great sources out there. This podcast being one of them. Um,
0: Thank
1: you. And there and there are there are a bunch of other podcasts out there that are that are great as well. And and there are a bunch of YouTube channels that are great. I'm sure most of your listeners check out Pensado's place and mix with the masters and all that type of stuff. Um, and you know, just knowing who you've had on here and listening to the interviews that you've done. This is a great resource for people who are trying to get a better understanding of, you know, just the audio world in general and how to make their, their own music and their own goals uh, for their music stronger and, and
0: more concise. Thank you. That's, that's the goal of this. That's exactly yeah. why I started this. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, in your opinion, then what ultimately makes a great mix at the end of the day?
1: Um, something that feels great, something that I love mixes where I don't notice the mix where I'm just lost in the song. Um, and, and that can mean a bunch of different things. There are, there are some great mixes that I feel like are successful mixes that I wouldn't use like as a reference. I love, uh, the first, I love Loveless by my bloody Valentine. Yep. I wouldn't use that as a reference. I'd use it as a reference for vibe and for feel for like some shoegazy stuff and I have and it's great. But like there's like no low end to that record. But you know what? When I listen to it, I don't care. <laughs> I just think it feels great. You know, there there's some stuff that there's some stuff that I listen to that is compressed to all hell and I probably wouldn't approach most things that way, but I when I listen to it, I get this excitement out of it and it just feels great. Um, but then there are other things like for me, like sea change by Beck and voodoo by D'Angelo are two of the greatest sounding records ever. And they could not sound more different, but <laughs> for, for what they're doing, they're like, they're pristine examples of the things that they do.
0: Yep. Well, and then, and that's just like, those are great examples of artists showing, like, that genre in the best light, you know, like the yeah. D'Angelo or the Beck sound. So, you know, it, going back to that idea of using reference tracks, I think finding songs that um, songs that the artists like and, that, like, artists that they admire and that they look up to and then finding songs that represent that genre really well and what most people are listening to in that genre, I think yeah. that, that'll help to dictate you know, your decisions and, and give you a good sense of frequency balance and levels and, and kind of what's accepted in that genre,
1: right? Totally. And, and, and I think that's the best place to focus is on the people who are the masters of their craft in the genre that you're working in. You know, I could listen to a Serbian and mix and I could listen to a Vance Powell mix and those two things will have almost nothing in common, but they're both outstanding at conveying what their artist is doing you know, and, and you could go across genres for things like this. You know, there's so many, there's so many great mix engineers, like, you know, Chad Blake, Andrew Sheps, uh, Manny American, Michael Brower, Dave Pensato, like the, these guys all do very different things and have a very different approach to how they, how they approach their mixes. Uh, but that doesn't mean any of them are wrong. None of them are wrong. They're just their approach to it and the reason why they have the clients that they do is because the clients like the approach that they took yeah absolutely so i think for anyone out there who's if you're making your own music and you want your own music to sound as good as possible work with someone who's going to understand what your music is or if you're going to do it yourself make the music that you want to make based on the, your influences listen to their records and try and try You know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And like we said earlier, like the Beatles were the were the world's best cover band for a long time. Become a cover band as a mix engineer. Just try and copy exactly what you're listening to. Yeah, of course. And try and get it to sound as close as possible. And here's the thing. I try to tell this to all my all my students. Um, I start off every mix class by telling them, you are all bad at this right now. And the good news is that you're going to keep working and getting better. Just think about how bad you were when you started playing your instrument and how good you are now. And you put in, you put in this amount of time and dedication to get to that point. I was a horrible mix engineer for years, for
0: years, a decade, I would say. Would Uh, you say you had a defining point where you realized how good you were? I'll let you know when I get there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think... So you're still bad at mixing and you're still I, getting better.
1: I think I still might be bad at mixing. Well, I, hopefully I'm still getting better. Yeah. <laughs> um, that I mean, I'm constantly looking to get better. And, and that's why, like, I love doing things like this because having these conversations makes me rethink certain things about my approach and, you know, talking to other engineers who I'm, am fr- lucky to be friends with a lot of engineers and a lot of mix engineers and people who've done great things. So being able to bounce ideas off them and have conversations with them is a big step for me. Like that really helps me look at my approach differently. For sure. So, so I think, I don't know. I think the, the first time that the first time that I noticed that I had, the first time I noticed that I might've done something good is when a mastering engineer told me that, you know, I didn't even have to do anything to this, or I barely had to do anything to this. And it, it already sounds great. Um, and at that point, like that was a mastering engineer who I really respect. And I was like, okay, now I might, I might be onto something at this point.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good, that's a good sign there.
1: Yeah. I think like, I always feel like my job is to make my client happy, but make sure the next person who gets this in their hands doesn't hate me for it. So if I'm tracking, I want to make sure the mix engineer has everything that they need And if I'm mixing, I want to make sure the mastering engineer isn't going, what was this guy thinking? You know, so it, like, I always, I always try and approach the job that way, where I'm looking back and looking forward and, you know, making sure the person behind me is, is I'm being respectful to, to what they're looking for and honoring that and making sure the next person ahead of me has everything that they need to do the job that they need to do. So as long as I'm doing that, then I'm doing my job.
0: Yep. And I think that that whole idea of just like, Communicating with your artists—I I feel like that's one of the big themes of this episode—is just like co- constantly checking in with your artists and understanding what their view is, so that you can make the d- better decisions. And and when it comes to transferring from the artist's brain to your brain to to your mastering engineer's brain, it's like everyone just has to be on that same path of what the sound's going to be, and you know, just making each other's jobs easier. Yeah, by, exactly. By helping give you giving that clarity, and even to the point that you brought up earlier of reference tracks, you know, I think. You, you could look up to artists or to engineers that you admire and you love the sounds of their mixes, but I think it's also still an important thing, and this is something I, I personally do, I'm sure you do too, where it's like, if I'm if I'm going to reference a song that the band didn't tell me that they're into, I'll ask them if they're into it, because I've I've gone through it many times where I'm like, I'll put on something in the studio, and then they're like, what are you listening to? We don't like this band. And it's like, oh, I thought you sounded like this. And then they're like, nope, we hate that band. Or and then it's like, okay, now I have a different vision for what this project's going to be, you know? I almost... N- I almost never
1: referenced an artist that the, that the band is the band, you know, hasn't sent me unless, unless it's going to be like a direct correlation to something that they have sent me and be like, so like, you know, if someone sends me this artist and I'm like, I get that, but I wonder, you know, I'll send them a thing and be like, what do you feel about like the low end on this record? If the low end on the thing they sent me was just kind of a little wacky. And if I get a yes or no, I know to make the low end a little wacky on the thing that they, you know, based on the thing that they sent. So, you know, it's, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Mike. It's, it's respect for the artist and honoring what they're looking to do, honoring their creative vision. We're just trying to enhance it. And we're just trying to make it the best version of what they hear in their head that they can't get there themselves.
0: Absolutely. As long as we make it sound better than the artist is happy, you know?
1: Yeah. Like Susan Rogers at Berkeley, once said to me, we should have a thing where we let students know as soon as they walk out of school here, that they have the word service tattooed across their forehead. Cause that's essentially what we are. We're in the service industry. Love it. You know, we're in, we're in, we're in, um, I'm trying to think of it. Client, client approval. You know, I'm trying to think of the the right term for it. Client assurance, quality assurance. We're here to make sure that the thing that they're looking to do is recorded and mixed and presented in the way that shines the best light on them as artists and says, and they can say quintessentially, this is who we were at this time when we, when we did this record, you know, for the year 2021, this, this spoke to who we are. Like that was, I got a mixed note because I finished a record um, this year for an artist called lady pills. And it's coming out in like february or something and she she sent me a text saying i you don't know how important it is as an artist and especially as a female artist to realize that you've been seen and heard and that's the best that's the best compliment i could ever get for something like this like i you know just through our conversations and this is someone who played every instrument on the record Except one song with pedal steel and I played bass on everything, but she played drums, guitars, sang everything, played keys, all of it. So, you know, when, when she sent me that note, it made me realize like, this is exactly why I do this. This is exactly why I'm, I'm in this profession because like I, that's the thing that I strive for. And knowing that I hit it with her, especially with her, because we did that record through quarantine and couldn't really share a space you know, like I have a space where my live room and control room are separate entrances. So she was able to like walk in and out and we were able to social distance pretty easy. And my control room, this wall behind me moves. So I've got another, you know, another eight feet behind that wall. So we can, we can be in the same room and be distant and she can go in there and perform and everything. So she was like one of the only people that I saw throughout the entire pandemic in person. And because of that, that record became a really personal record for me. And I know it was for her as well. So when, when I got that mixed note, because I had done a pretty daring thing on that mix that I wasn't, that I didn't know if it was going to fly, but I had a sense was going to fly knowing her sensibilities. And when I got that note and she was like, this is, this is beyond where I could have expected it to go. And that's the best compliment you can get from yeah. anybody.
0: And that's just because you were listening.
1: Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to. It's like re understand who the muse is and listen to, listen to that person. Of course. I I love that. You don't have to, you don't have to put your thumbprint on everything. Your thumbprint's going to be there naturally just by the decisions that you innately and organically make when you're working on something, but you don't have to like force it. You know, you, you don't have to say like, Oh, I have to this is like my style or my signature sound. Anyone who tells me that they have a mixing style, then just stop right there. Because if you have a mixing style, you're, you're instantly limiting yourself to any possibilities that you could grow outside of that.
0: It's true. It, it's, it's, it's that idea of I'm a bad mixer now and I will get better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, I, and well, I think it's... you always have to think that way. You always have to challenge yourself to grow and be willing to grow and, and adapt your style. And and 100%. Absolutely.
1: So like, that's, that's really the big thing for me is, is like all of you just don't worry about like putting your recording or mixing style on things. Don't have a style. Your style is going to develop based on the choices that you make on microphones, on preamps, on compressors, on plugins that you use, but don't think of it as like, I have to use this because it's my thing to use like this reverb on my vocal. Anytime you do that, you're limiting your, you're limiting your options and you're limiting your chance for creative growth. So stay away from that. Just kind of do the thing that you do, do it as best you can and let the rest speak for itself. It, it kind of goes back to the first thing that we talked about where like, just make the art, just, just let the art tell you where it needs to go.
0: I love it. I think that's a great spot to, to end on. Um, you know, thank you for taking the time to do this, Sean. Like it, it you had so many great insights here and I think people are going to really love this interview. Um for people who might want to learn more about you and follow you online, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: So, I've got uh my studio site which now needs to be updated because we're doing some construction and uh the room looks very different. But it's 37ft.com, 37foot.com. Uh for those of you that are into sports, that is the height of the left field wall at Fenway Park. And that's how we came up with the name. Uh, I also have my site, which is seanmclaughlin.audio. I'm sure you'll be able to spell that as soon as the podcast comes out. Yeah, I'll
0: have have all the links in the (laughs) show
1: notes. Awesome. Awesome. So anyone who wants to find anything out, reach out, ask me any question, want me to mix something, I'm here. Awesome.
0: And lastly, are there any cool projects that you're currently working on right now that you can talk about?
1: Yeah, actually. um, Well, I'm... I'm currently working on a project with this artist named Cody Nilsson. He's a guitar player from Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, and it's very like sort of rock, sort of Americana. I would say in the kind of the Tom Petty, Joe Walsh kind of vein of things. I'm really, really digging where that project is going. Uh, like I mentioned, Lady Pills record is coming out in, uh, like three months. I want to say February. Um, I'm just looking through the list cause my brain is, my brain is spinning a little bit, uh, artist from not sure when the record's coming out, but I mixed an artist, uh, from Nashville called Taylor Hogan. And these songs are just incredible. They're absolutely incredible. Uh, and I'm working on an EP with this, uh, woman named Mia Bustrom who no joke is one of the best singers I've ever worked with. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal singer. And, uh, Lastly, I'm doing a project that, um, I don't know, I don't know how much detail I can go into this, but, uh, I'm doing a project that is going to be released, uh, a collection of songs that is meant to raise autism awareness. Amazing. The, uh, yeah, the, the, the young woman in question is nonverbal, but has an IQ of 160 and writes poetry and her mother has put a band together to write music to the poetry. Oh, I love and that. It's, it's incredible. And I've, I don't think I'm at liberty to say who's playing on it yet, or who I should say who's making guest appearances yet, but there are going to be names that people recognize from rock, classical pop music that are going
0: to be involved in it. So amazing. You'll have to let us know when yeah. that finally comes out. It'd be great to check out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amazing. I, I love that. Well, well Sean, thank you so much for taking the time again to to do this. It was a lot of fun. Um and uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back on at some point because I think we can we could probably go way deeper into a lot of this stuff.
1: Yeah, I feel like we barely scratched the surface on where we could go. And totally. we only t- we only really touched like one small pie chart, you know, pie section of uh of what we could hit. Yeah. We ha- we have so much more pie. Well, <laughs> we'll
0: come back from some more pie later. <laughs> that sounds excellent. Thanks for having me. Like this has All been right. a gr- this has been a great time. Thank you. So that was my interview with Sean McLaughlin and I hope that you enjoyed that just as much as I did recording it. Sean is a great guy. I think that he just is very clear in the way he communicates and the whole conversation about communicating with artists. I think Sean just gave us so many great tidbits in terms of things to look out for and ways that we can get better results. And I just love his approach to recording and editing and how it always ties back to what the musicians want and having those lines of communication there and even the stuff that he talked about early on in the episode about mix revisions and how to make sure that you're getting accurate mix revision notes i think that this is all stuff that is very relevant and At the end of the day, having those strong lines of communication with your artists is ultimately what's going to make everyone happy. You're going to get much better results, and it'll keep people coming back to you as an engineer. So it's really important to master this stuff, and I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to this interview because there's so many great nuggets in there of ways that you can make sure your process goes smoother and that you create a better environment for your artists to be working in. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode, and if you did, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they are released on Wednesday mornings. And also, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And on the website, I've got tons of great resources designed to help make the process of mixing easy for you. And one resource that you're definitely going to want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. This is a book that I created a little while ago to give you a beginning-to-end system for creating great-sounding mixes. And inside, I break down the entire process of analyzing your tracks, using tools like EQ and compression, identifying when to boost, when to cut, when to use compression, when to use effects, automation, all the things that you need to do in order to create a pro sounding mix from beginning to end. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is the end of this episode, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end and I look forward to talking to you in the next one. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.